Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. Today, I have the absolute privilege to chat with the extraordinary Leah Goodridge. Leah is a nationally renowned lawyer, a respected thought leader, and a captivating writer. She's a prominent advocate for housing justice, combating gentrification, and promoting workplace anti-racism. Her insightful publications on anti-racism are regarded as essential reading and are taught in over 30 universities, companies, and organizations across the nation. In this episode, Leah and I talk about something you may know very well, corporate happy hours. Leah shares her perspective on why these events, often seen as mandatory, as required, can be rooted in elitism and classism, creating an unfair environment for younger workers and historically marginalized employees. Happy hours can be expensive. They can exclude those who choose not to drink, and they often perpetuate power imbalances within the corporate structure. So if you're curious about any of this, sit back and join me for this crucial conversation with the inspirational, the wonderful Leah Goodridge. Hey, Leah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm so pleased you're here. You know, before we get started, I like to get to know people like who they are and what they're all about. So I bet you got an interesting backstory. Why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you're all about? All right. Well, I'm from Brooklyn in New York. And uh, I professionally, I'm an attorney at a local nonprofit. I help people who are facing eviction. So I'm all about tenants' rights. And uh, then I have a second job. I am a commissioner on my city's planning commission. Uh, And so that also has a lot to do with housing. So it takes up a lot of those two jobs take up a lot of my time. I would imagine. Well, I asked you to be on the pod today because I'm a fan of yours on LinkedIn, started following you, and you wrote this really beautiful letter to your younger self with advice professionally and personally. And one of the earliest things you wrote in that letter was a line about drinking and alcohol at work. And I just thought, could you tell us about that letter and tell us what advice you would give to your younger self? Yeah. I mean, so now I have been in the workplace for uh, a solid, like 20 years. Right. And I remember when I started I've been practicing as an attorney for a little over 10 years. And before that, I had some work experience. So hence the, the rounding up. But when I started, it was hell. I mean, it was little things that I think a lot of people didn't necessarily pay attention to. Like, for example, if if you wanted to bond with other people, the way to bond, the only way it seemed was to go to drinks after work. Yeah. And you know what? I didn't have drinking money. 
Um, there were many times I was just so embarrassed because I didn't necessarily, I'm not like a big drinker. And so my first time that I did this, I didn't realize how expensive it was. And I actually didn't have the money. So I wrote this letter to myself and it was really about elitism, hidden elitism that is often in the workplace and the ways that it comes out and things that we may not vocalize and speak about, but that is very present. And that's one of them. Yeah. I was really fascinated by that take because up until the point that I read your letter, I had viewed workplace drinking as a potentially problematic, definitely indicative of power in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of things happen with power when two people have been drinking. Also, I viewed it as exclusionary, right? If you don't drink, you can't participate. But that notion of elitism was so fascinating. So tell me a little bit more about that and the other ways that can manifest. Yeah, I mean, you know, other ways it can manifest is then, you know, if you wanted to have lunch with, say, a director at your company or your nonprofit, then the way to do it, you know, you go to lunch. And I was just so at that time I had buffet money, you know, like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, like buffet, like nine ninety nine, but I didn't have sit down restaurant money. And when you go to lunch with directors, they do the sit down restaurant. And sometimes they don't cover it and you don't know if they're going to cover it and it's anxiety inducing. So you're doing this whole, oh, I'll only eat a salad, even though you want more. And it's, and you know, because there was a power imbalance, it's really sort of, you know, people, I, I didn't feel comfortable being like, are you going to cover this or not? <laughs> right, right. Who has that kind of confidence at, you know, their early onset of their career? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's funny because now I'm, I'm, I've been a manager now for a good seven years and in the legal field. And so when I take people to lunch, I tell them up front, um, even before we go to lunch, I'm covering this. But one thing people used to do that, I, I've, the, the reason why I do that is I remember the sheer terror and anxiety because people would wait until the very end, like when the check came to be like, oh, I'm covering this. I'm like, okay, well, I could have gotten more than a salad, (laughs) like one juice, but I would be sitting up there like, oh, I'm not that hungry, you know, only because I didn't have the money, you know, but I wanted to make these connections. And that's another thing too. Well, oftentimes people inculcate in what is considered bonding, the fact that you are also like, if they're eating, you're supposed to eat like a meal. If they're drinking, you're supposed to eat. And when you don't, they're like, oh, you're not that much fun. So there are these sort of hidden ways that elitism pops up and an imbalance of power. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, this notion of not having money, though, is so pervasive and something that is shameful for many young careerists. And it's stupid because one of the universal things that bonds many new careerists is student debt, right? This an inability to pay back our student loans or expensive housing, which is something that you deal with, right? So we've got this burden on a significant part of our young workforce that they are truly working for money. Like that is what your early career is all about. And yet that's kind of shameful for a lot of people to admit. And I wonder what can we do to deconstruct some of that shame? You know, I'm not gonna lie. I had this experience a number of years ago where there's this like New York program that helps if you're an attorney, it actually assists you pay your loans. And I remember mentioning, and this was years ago, um, not even, I don't, it wasn't even at this job, but I remember mentioning it to a colleague and they were like, oh, and I, and it dawned on me in that conversation, like, oh my God, you don't have student loans. Um, I was like, she was like, oh, right, loan, well, right, right. And, uh, 
And somehow it came out that she didn't have student loans. And I was like, what is that life like? And I remember feeling very ashamed and sort of like not bringing it up again, you know? So I think to answer your question, I think it's helpful to incorporate things like the student debt into workplace um, equity trainings and workplace equity conversations. I think a lot of things are not incorporated in what we're calling equity, like DEI and these, you know, like they, you know, a lot of places aren't incorporating colorism, uh, disability, ableism, uh, fat phobia, you know, and also clearly classism and how that plays out. Well, for sure. You know, you use the word equity, and I think a lot of people uh, transpose equity and inequality. And so I I don't know if this is even something you want to do, but could you define the two for us? I, you know, it's so funny. I'm laughing because one of the things I do on LinkedIn is I actually joke about this very thing. (laughs) Because there is this, this baseball meme that has this like the difference between equality, equity, whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, you know. There's a dancing meme like that too. I mean, and you know, in some ways it's appropriate. So let's talk about um, inequity, right? A lot of people think that's just as simple as, well, you know, this white guy makes a dollar and this African-American woman makes 67 cents. And I mean, that's one way to understand inequity, right? But there are a lot of shades of that. And so I wonder if we can drill down a little bit on that. Yeah. So some of the shades are, let's say that the black woman in that scenario does make, it is like in a leadership position, she may still not make as much as a white male who has not the same title and maybe even what's considered a title that is on the hierarchy in that institution lower, they still not make as much. You know, and then you have instances where there is your actual workplace salary. There are many people who make six figures, but because they are from low or low to moderate income backgrounds, that money is going to supporting family members. Yeah, it's really not the same as or it's going towards paying student debt. So it doesn't it's not really the same as when you make six figures and you come from a family that also makes six figures and you don't have to worry about a good chunk of that money going elsewhere. Well, I bring this up because we take everything in this world, right? You know, all of the issues, all of the challenges, and we bring them to the bar. We bring them to happy hour, right? And so it's not like two people show up and they're equals at the bar, even though we may all be drinking the same beer, the same glass of wine. And I just wonder about the role of alcohol. You know, that I've interviewed many people who are like, if I could cut it, and completely remove alcohol from a workplace setting, I think that would advance the case for belonging. I think that would make gains for inequality and and inequity in the workplace. And, and I think there's something to be said for that, but I also don't know that that's true or don't know that that's realistic. So do you have a POV on that at all? I do, you know, so I mentioned before that, you know, I have now been well into my career and I sort of moved up the career ladder and now I'm in a leadership position. And I can tell you from a bird's eye view, certain things that have popped up around alcohol that I didn't necessarily think about, but that these lessons taught me um, how they can sort of STEMI belonging. One is religion, right? Sometimes people are adhering to their religion 
and that will dictate that they're not drinking. So there's that. And often the problem is, okay, you might say, okay, fine. So that one person doesn't have to drink. But the problem is that specific to drinking, people often, like I said before, there's a lot of pressure. So when you're not drinking, people make comments like, oh, you're a buzzkill or, oh, why aren't you drinking? People will ask you, why aren't you drinking? Yeah, um, Because sure. that is not enough that you're actually at a bar. Everyone is expected to actually drink. So I think that's the problem. The other issue I've seen pop up, I had one time where it wasn't necessarily like full on alcohol, but I had put, we, I had put out like cookies and I didn't even think of it. And someone ate them and they spit it right out. And they were like, are these rum cookies? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, oh, I can't have this. And I then the person later told me like, you know, I've been I've been sober for many years and something like this to tell people. And so that's not even something that I had thought about. But obviously, because because we have we have this very big drinking culture, I thought like, oh, it'd be fun. But I hadn't even thought about that, that some people are avoiding this and to at least inform them. So we've got this default culture in many organizations that, you know, goes to drinking, right? Drinking is the answer for team building, for happy hours, for brainstorming, for innovating, for staying up late and working through a plan right at the last minute. And so the feedback I'm getting from a lot of thoughtful seasoned leaders and consultants is we want to completely remove alcohol from the environment. We think that'll make things safer and better. You know, Leah, I'm, I'm still not sold on that because I think there are systemic inequities and inequalities that are going to come up no matter what, whether you have alcohol or not. And it's real easy to see how it gets amplified with alcohol, but I don't know that remove, I think if we remove alcohol, that's a corporatist way of saying we, we took care of the problem, right? But they didn't take care you of the know, problem. You know what I think it is, right? I think my particular issue is that the only form of social bonding outside of work from a company is often alcohol. It involves alcohol. That's my issue. So it isn't my way of thinking about it. Isn't necessarily to say we should remove it entirely. It is that all of the options cannot just be about alcohol. It can't just be, oh, let's go out for drinks. There could be other things that your team can do to bond. Um, so something that I've done is I've, you know, previously taken my team on hikes, you know, upstate, state New York, or we've gone to the escape room where, you know, where that's another way of bonding, but none of it involved alcohol. None mm. of it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So one of the things I do hear throughout some of these interviews is the role of alcohol in perpetuating a culture that turns a blind eye to sexual harassment and sexual assault. And I know your area of expertise in the law is not necessarily this, but I wonder if you have some thoughts on this, the role of alcohol and the pervasiveness of it in sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the danger is that specific to the workplace, the role alcohol plays is you're supposed to, or you're expected to let loose and for some people, especially those with privilege, let loose has a very different meaning than with people who don't have the same privilege or any privilege at all. So it creates a dynamic where it can be a very unsafe space where I know I have experienced this of where you are 
you know, going, going out for drinks and that you're supposed to show your other side. You're supposed to let loose. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, here we go. Um, I'm sober. There's other people aren't. And uh, this is what people are coming for to, for like, this is how people bond. And I think that element, this sort of, I wouldn't say that it is trauma bonding, but it's, I will say it's kind of like dysfunction bonding because why do you have to bond over, you know, you, you can let loose without going into this other being belligerent or, cause that's how people bond, right? Oh, last night, last night was wild. Tim got up on the table or Tim did, it's like, yeah, no, you know, there are other ways where you can create and foster an environment where people let loose and have a sense of belonging without all of that. This trauma bonding or dysfunction bonding is so fascinating to me because I just have this working thesis in my professional work that we over-index on work when things are wrong with our own personal lives, right? So if something's wrong in our family, something's wrong, you know, we've got unresolved, unprocessed grief, whatever, we often go to work to look as an to look for an escape. And I don't think that's healthy or even productive, right? But then in a toxic work environment, instead of addressing the toxicity, what a lot of people do, in my professional opinion, is kind of come together and drink about it instead of fix it, right? They don't think about it, they drink about it. So it's interesting that you picked up on this idea of dysfunction bonding. And I just wonder if that tends to be the default in organizations. And I know this is all speculation on your part, when you can't fix it, and instead of leaving, it's almost like this thing that people do where they drink and bitch well, about well, things and get stuck. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just rip off the bandaid here. Right. When you're drinking and you're in these environments, are you like literally sitting there problem solving and thinking, well, what, <laughs> or are you gossiping about people? Right. You're <laughs> right. And that's not really, but you know, you're gossiping, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's and, true. Oh, you know, here's the juice, you know, here's what's really going on. Like that, that's, what the whole purpose of the going out for drinks to get the juice. That's, that's what it is. hundred um, percent. Oh my goodness. And, that is... and I think that that is a crux of dysfunction because there is a very big difference between getting some information, getting some insight, right. And then sort of positioning yourself as, well, we're over here and we're talking about you over there, Right. It's it's a big difference. So that's the part when I say it can kind of foster inequity. Yeah, absolutely. I see that. Well, you know, as we start to wrap up the conversation, I'm really fascinated still with this letter that you wrote to yourself and the advice that you gave to yourself. So at the beginning of the conversation, you indicated that now as a manager, you give people guardrails. When you're going out, you let them know how they're going to eat, how, who's paying, like you're really super clear on your communication. And I wonder if we can take that and just maybe throw out some advice for managers and for leaders about creating a culture that, you know, has a sense of belonging, that's inclusive, that strives to at least dismantle some of these inequities. So you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, my number one thought is that your, your first, you know, team trip or your first team bonding trip shouldn't be focused on drinking. You kind of want people clear headed so that they can actually, this is why I said that's kind of dysfunction, but it's, it's, it, there are other ways to bond where you can actually sit and talk and who are you and your family or who, whatever you want to reveal. Right. 
So that's one example. And I gave some examples of uh, what you can do. Another is if you are going to take someone out, like an intern or someone on your team, then you should let them know from beforehand about who's paying for what so that they don't have to sit there <laughs> terrorized like, what am I going to do? Uh, you and know, also potentially use- give people an out, right? I mean, I heard that in, you know, at least implied in some of your language that not everybody wants to go to lunch. Not everybody wants to go to happy hours. So not penalizing an individual for saying no, right? And going home and being with their fam. It's it's okay if you want to meet up in a park instead of like actually having to, I mean, look, think about it this way. It's not just, we're talking about drinking, sure, but we're also talking about a form of bonding that many people utilize for their own career advancement. And that form of bonding is often involving extra money out of their pocket that the institution does not pay for. So I can tell you right now, as a person who didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, that other person's thinking about it. You might not be, but they are. And so it's important to think about what are different ways that you can, can you go on a walk with them? Can you, or, you know, what are different ways that you can actually connect with this person that does not involve someone paying for it? Yeah. And possibly not over indexing on the bonding. Like that's the other thing. Like uh, there's some bonding that's appropriate in a culture, but I don't know how you feel. I don't need to know the ins and outs of every member of my team. Like if they want to share it, that's great. But I, I got stuff to do at home. So I think, you know, many company cultures have spent too much time on that. Yeah. And I, and I made that mistake as a new manager. I think that there are many layers if you are a woman, a black woman, if you're from a marginalized group, uh, you know, you, especially if you are, whatever your marginalized group, if, if the stereotype is that you're a diva or that you're, you know, can I curse as you're a bitch? Of course, please. You know, yeah. if, they, if, you know, it's that you're a mean or whatever it is, then sometimes because of those ideas, you kind of feel like you have to go overboard to prove that you've been this nice person, you don't want to bond with people. So that's one mistake I did as a new I'm not new now, but as a new um, manager. And so it's hard because you want to sort of like get people to know you and you know that these other, you know, you're battling these kind of other boxes that people may put you in. So I will say that it's difficult, but when you do have these interactions with people, it's very, very helpful to remember even if you may also not have all the privileges, you still have some, and it's helpful to remember these other areas that the people that you're you're treating or that you're connecting with may be facing. Yeah. You know, as I have this conversation with you, one of the things I'm struck by in the work that I'm doing right now is that when we start to peel the onion around drinking and workplace behaviors and expectations and classism, what I'm really getting to is the heart of truly broken system, which is capitalism. Right, you know, like it's the I root of it, but yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, I mean, this is it. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix capitalism. Like that's not something I'm skilled to do, but this is really the heart of it. Like capitalism is just so broken. And what you mentioned a bandaid before drinking, not drinking policy, no policy doesn't matter because capitalism's going to win. At least that's the trajectory we're going on. I don't, are you more optimistic than I am? You know, this reminds me of years ago, I watched Toni Morrison at a New York Public Library event, and she was talking about 9-11. 
and September 11th, and she explained it. So she said something so profound that I hadn't even thought about, but she said as a nation that our leaders at the time, and she was right, she said they weren't telling us we're here for you. They said, go out and buy something. And I hadn't thought about how much in capitalists in like countries, how much self-care and care is so much tied to going out and buying something, you know, going out and buying an outfit, treating yourself to a manicure, pet, all of that involves money. And so when I say in the workplace to sort of, you know, disrupt that mentality by not having bonding based on buying something, it is a form of um, fostering equity. Mm. That is so well said. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, sharing your ideas and sharing your time with us today. It was great to have you today as a guest and thanks again. Thank you so much. It was great being here. Thank you for inviting me. The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes, and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.